just uh, want to mention today that we're glad to have Susan Galvin back playing the piano today. Um, and uh, consider that a real plus for us all. We're glad she's here. If you have a Bible, it'd be a good idea to open it now to Acts chapter 2. As we look at a portrait or a snapshot of the first New Covenant church. It's not the first church, but it is the first New Covenant expression of a church. The church has been around 4,000 years before Pentecost, and so we uh, celebrate what God has done. And so what I'm going to do uh, before we get into verses 42 to 47, which will be the bulk or balance of what we will talk about this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Peter's uh, response to the question, brothers, what shall we do? So let's uh, begin in verse 37 of chapter 2. I wanted to uh, say a few things about that before I jump into uh, verses 40 through 47. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even uh, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those that received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then Luke provides for us in verses 42 to 47 what is called a summary passage. And here he summarizes what this fledgling church spent time doing. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is... God's Word, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray again that you will be faithful as you always are to empower both the one who preaches and the ones who listen. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would enable us to see and behold and be moved by and stand in awe of the truth of God's Word. May it melt our hearts today. May it warm them up. May we be energized and vitalized by the preaching of your word. And Lord, we claim the promise that you have made to us 
that as your word goes forth out of your mouth, it prospers where you send it, and it accomplishes all of your purposes. Do that today, and we will rejoice. And we play, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, before we get into the summary regarding the church, Peter, in response to the question, tells uh, those who had heard the Pentecost sermon, which is basically summed up by saying he is in a very um, detailed and structured way, proving to this original audience of Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And they were cut to the heart because they realized that they themselves were uh, a part of the movement toward having the Lord of glory crucified. But Peter tells them to do two things. First, he tells them to repent. And we all know the Greek word for repent is metanoia, which means a complete change of one's mind. It's much, much, much more than just being sorry for something. It means to completely change your approach, to change your foundation, your core, your mind, your worldview, as it were, about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And so he tells them that. He does not tell them to believe in Jesus, but we know that they did because down in verse 44, he calls them believers. So it is impossible uh, to really repent without believing. They're like two sides of the same coin or two wings on an airplane. And so what he is saying is it's impossible to re repent without believing for to turn from sin and the old way of thinking entails turning to God and a whole new way of thinking. And so when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, when he makes us alive, when he calls us out of our deadness in sin and places himself, he inhabits us, we have a whole new understanding of the nature of reality, a whole new understanding of our identity, a whole new way of seeing everything. And so that's what he's talking about. And he says, you can't change your mind about Jesus without doing both repenting and believing. And of course, as we go through Acts, we'll see them combined together. But the second thing Peter tells them to do is to be baptized. And that was a remarkable thing to ask of Jews because Jews believed the people who needed to be baptized were those nasty Gentile converts because they saw the Gentiles as being spiritually unclean. Now, Peter says that everyone who wishes to be a Christian needs to be baptized and to do it in the name of the one that had, they had previously rejected. That would be a public sign in the strongest terms that they had repented and had completely changed their minds about who Jesus is and was and what he did. And it's important to realize in this situation that Peter would emphasize baptism as being so important as a sign of their repentance. Now, some churches, and this would be the church of my maternal uh, gr grandmother, uh, took Acts 38 as a complete guide to salvation. She used to, in a loving way, and uh, I, I do believe my grandmother was saved by grace, but in a loving way, she would send me tracts all the time 
She did not consider me a Christian because I had not been baptized in a church of Christ. Therefore, I hadn't truly repented. Therefore, I hadn't truly believed and that this was the formula in the Bible. In other words, since Peter says they must repent and be baptized, it is inferred that water baptism is necessary, required, in order to receive forgiveness of sins. But the problem with that interpretation of Acts 2.38 is that it makes Acts 2.38 contradict the entire books of both Galatians and Romans who tell us there is nothing we can bring, nothing we can do to save ourselves. Uh, that we are saved entirely, completely by grace. And if you add one scintilla to grace at all, you've changed grace into works. And no flesh shall ever be justified by the works of the law. And so Paul adamantly insists that no act of obedience either receives or achieves salvation, only faith in Christ does. So how do we understand Acts 2.38 so that it does not undermine all the rest that the New Testament tells us? We must see that Peter is saying repentance and its flip side, faith, are signified in baptism. Let me explain that. What he is saying here is if we didn't have the rest of the New Testament, it could be very possible to conclude that Peter is saying that repentance, faith, and baptism are both prerequisites or receptors of salvation. But we do have the rest of the New Testament. And if we realize the context and the situation on that day, we can see why Peter would have so strongly pressed them to be baptized immediately as a sign that the Jews have completely changed their minds about Christ. Peter tells them also that if they repent and believe, they will receive two promises. They will receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and this is a great summary of what it means to become a genuine Christian. When we become a Christian, there is something legal that happens outside of us. We are declared forever to be righteous under the favor of God, right with God forever. But there's also something else that happens. We are accepted as sinless and perfect, our record being pardoned and covered. But there's also something that happens within us. We get a new life, a new power and spirit directly from God. So in summary, when we look at the message preached on the day of Pentecost, we have two events, Christ's death and his resurrection ascension, as attested by two witnesses, the Bible and historical witnesses to the resurrection, on the basis of which God makes two promises, forgiveness and the gift of the Spirit, on two conditions, repentance and faith, and we have no liberty to amputate this apostolic gospel. So what I would say from that is I just felt like I needed to clarify that. I hope that was helpful to you. Now let's shift gears and jump into Acts 2, 40 and following. Here we run into what is called a summary passage. Luke shows us 
how the gift of the Holy Spirit generated or brought about a community characterized by unity and oneness, a sense of togetherness and accord, a community characterized by peace in relationships, a community characterized by profound joy, and a community characterized by worship. And so we have here a description of the inner life of the New Covenant Church, but also its outer witness in the community. The church, Peter will tell us, is not a breakaway or splinter group movement from Judaism, but is the true Israel that Scripture anticipated and looked forward to, where the Spirit was powerfully at work fulfilling God's last day's promises. Now Luke, in his presentation of the church, does not hide the weaknesses of this church. As we go through Acts, we're going to see there was hypocrisy in this church. There was uh, 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 apostasy in this church. There were all kinds of goofy things going on in this church because the church wasn't perfect. It's not like it's the, the perfect church from which we fell and are trying to get back to. But the church, what he is implying, is that the church in Jerusalem was a model that could happen when people were bound together by a belief in the gospel and an understanding of its implications and enjoyment of its benefits. We see here in this description what we would call a gospel-centered church. This is what a gospel-centered church looks like. This is what a gospel culture is. This is what is produced by the faithful preaching of the gospel is life, not death. Any kind of preaching that makes you depend on something you do is a ministry of death, not life. Anything that preaches the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus and Him crucified, gives you life. Life. And that's what we see here. A little snapshot, a little vignette, as it were, of what this church was. And so Peter uh, begins to list the characteristics and function of the early church which are evident in this passage. The list can be broken down in many ways, and I'm going to, first of all, just sort of give you my initial reading of this passage, sort of in bullet points, and I'm just going to go right through them, and then I will come back to the summary. First, let's say we were brainstorming on this passage. First, the church trained and educated its members. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The church brought its members together constantly, every day. They couldn't stay away from each other. The church moved members into relationships of mutual support and fellowship. They were together. They were the fellowship. The church had both small group meetings. They broke their bread in homes. And large group meetings. They continued to meet in the temple courts. The church practiced the sacrament of the Lord's Supper constantly. The term of the breaking of bread, the little article the, I, I just call the, in verse 42 and 46 is thought by most scholars to be a description of the meal together at which the Lord's Supper was observed, often at a fellowship table meal. The key indicator is the meaning of the word 
uh, of the phrase is the word the before the breaking of bread. The church spent much time in group prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer, which occurred evidently in home groups as well as public gatherings. The church practiced radical stewardship, economic sharing, and mercy ministry, at least within the community. People got practical, financial, and material help for their needs, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. There were deeds of power within the church, which accompanied and verified the truth of the apostles' preaching. Many wonders and miraculous signs were, uh, signs were done by the apostles. There was a general spirit of joy glad and sincere hearts, giving praise to God, which permeated every meeting at every level. And this community life was extraordinarily attractive to outsiders. Notice that it says enjoying the favor or the goodwill of all people. A true gospel culture. The church was evangelistically effective in the extreme with new conversions every day. The Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. And conversions were not seen individualistically. When a person was saved, they were added to their number. They were incorporated into a deep relationship, not only with Jesus, but to his church, his body, not just to the Lord. Salvation is individual, it is personal, but it's corporate in the sense that the same act that sets us in union with Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, also sets us in union with the body of Christ. The, the new covenant expression of the church as well as the old knows nothing of individual aloofness and non-engagement with the church. The church is God's idea. The church is what God took 3,000 brand new baby believers and put them in, something called the church. And so for those who in our day, and there are many, who play down church, who uh, say they love Jesus but hate his church, need to wake up. Need to wake up. You need to change that uh, because you are a part of the body. Now, what do we learn about the church's ministry of learning and ministry of fellowship? I'm going to kind of reverse a little bit in the order of the bulletin. I know that drives some of you crazy, but you'll just have to be crazy today. Uh, point two and three I'm going to reverse. So point two, uh, three, fellowship and community will become point two. And, you know, so why don't you go ahead? Because it flows better this way. That's why. So here we go. First... Notice that they devoted themselves to something in verse 42. The ministry of learning, theology and teaching, it was intense. That's what the word devoted means. There was a high commitment to learning. Spirit-filledness is not set against the mind or the intellect. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. The most spiritual-filled church, spirit-filled church you could ever go to is one that is filled with Bible study. Filled with Bible study on every level, all the time. That's a spirit-filled church because the Word and the Spirit always work in tandem together. So there was a high commitment to learning. It was 
completely centered on the apostolic teaching. It was not learning in general, but rather the study of God's revelation to us as it came to us through the apostles, ultimately inscripturated as the canon of the New Testament. That's what the apostles' teaching was. And today, of course, the apostles' teaching is the scriptures. This teaching was also accompanied by apologetics. That is, people were taught to understand why it's important to believe what they believe and to defend the faith, but to understand the implications of the faith. In other words, it wasn't just rote or memory learning. They were not just taught what to believe, but they were given def uh, evidence or a, a defense for the faith for why to believe it. And this point is often missed unless we realize that verse 43 is not an isolated statement. It follows verse 42. The apostles' teaching was validated and verified by the miracles and wonders that they did. These miracles and, and wonders were not naked displays of power, but they were signs signifying the reality of the fact and Hebrews 2 shows us that the purpose of miracles in the early church was, of course, to accomplish good for people, but secondly, to show the listeners the truth of the gospel message that the apostles brought. If you look at the Bible and study the Bible, a survey of the Bible reveals that miracles are not distributed randomly throughout redemptive history. But they come in clusters, so to speak. When God sends a new set of messengers into the world with a new stage of revelation. Thus there are only really three ages of miracles. Moses and Exodus, you know what those were. Elijah and the prophets before. And uh, Jesus and the apostles. Since we are not apostles, it is likely uh, that there will not be the same number and kinds of miracles today as then, but we must realize that the principle of verse 43 was that people were shown evidence of the truth of apostolic teaching. People need sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is like a skeleton for the body. If we didn't have a skeleton in our body, we'd all just be big blobs, right? And we wouldn't have any strength. We couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And so sound doctrine is extremely important. But let me say something about this. I think what the New Testament is aiming at is something I like to call, and I got it from Richard F. Lovelace, who taught church history forever at Gordon-Conwell, uh, is this. He called it live orthodoxy. I like that. Live orthodoxy. The opposite of dead orthodoxy. Now, we Presbyterians, we love our doctrine, and we love our theology, and that's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. However, we can run into a problem of dead orthodoxy. What does that look like? It, it looks like when the basic fundamental truths of the Bible and the gospel are not actively energizing and moving our hearts, and we just become sort of stuck in our ways and stuck in the middle without you instead of with you. You remember the song, right? Somebody want to sing it for me? Stuck in the middle with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. But 
Live orthodoxy means that in this particular church, you see not only great sound teaching, but that teaching is alive. It's transforming people. It's changing people. It's moving people out of their comfort zones. It's powerful. That's what this is. Live orthodoxy. The Spirit and the Word working together mightily under the direction of our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father, bringing about new life. That's live orthodoxy. And that's what we need in our church is to have not only, um, and not only did they study the Bible uh, 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 in the temple courts, but also at home, there was small group, community group, studying of the Bible. You ever wonder where we get this concept of community groups? Here it is. And it's all over the Bible. Every time you see the phrase, one another, that is the mandate for community. Christianity is not lived outside of relationships. It is intensely and intensively relational. Now, I know I'm preaching all this right now to a bunch of people who can't even come to church. But I'm, what I'm trying to do is make you homesick so that when we start back, you'll get yourselves back in here. Because that's what the church is. The church is a living body being uh, vitalized. All right, well, you need to listen faster. Number two, it is uh, the fellowship. The fellowship, the ministry of fellowship. Fellowship was a uh, deep and uh, virile and it, it cost it wasn't cheap or superficial they shared their lives and they were very intentional about fellowship you really need fellowship you really need connection with other believers you really really do here's what usually happens in the church I've seen this happen a million not a million but let's say a thousand times probably is somebody will begin to uh, become infrequent in their attendance to church and maybe they went to a small group for a little while but they kind of dropped out of that maybe they were coming regularly to worship like once maybe every six weeks sometimes once a month if they're having a really good month but you just don't see them they're not connected they're not with and and and, and that's a sad sad thing but what I also notice is when I talk to people like that what do they usually tell you I'm just getting nothing out of this. I don't get anything out of coming to church. I mean, you're a nice guy. You're funny sometimes. But I'm not really getting a whole lot out of the preaching. And, and I don't go to community group because, you know, those people want to be, you know, they want to mess in my personal life, you know. I want to keep things out here. I, I don't want to have to be open and share my struggles with anyone. I don't want to be vulnerable. You know, I just want a, a arm's length relationship with the church. And I just have to tell that person every single time, I have noticed that when people begin to lag and they begin to not read their Bibles anymore, not begin to pray, they have to defend themselves, right? So what do they do? They attack you. And they attack me. And they talk about the elders. Those elders don't know what they're doing. Those elders are no good. I've never seen elders so sorry. Well, I'm an elder too, so when you're saying that, you're saying it about me. But people begin to gripe and complain and complain and grumble. It's, it's like the tents in the wilderness wanderings. There's a lot of grumbling in the tents because they don't like what Moses is doing. But that's a sign that you're missing connection with Christ's body. That you are choking off life that you would otherwise be getting. 
So they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It was therefore not something that just happened. They worked at it. This implies accountability with one another and a sense of responsibility to care and support and guide each other. And it was daily. They did not just see each other on Sundays, but they were involved in each other's daily lives. It was economic as well as spiritual. Had everything in common. They recognized not only uh, other brothers and sisters had a claim on their time and heart, but also their resources. And so it was a very small group, house-based church. They broke bread in their homes. If we put this together with statements like Acts 2020 and greetings to the church that meets in our house, we see the importance of small group communities in the early church. They were connected. They used their spiritual gifts to minister to each other. What does it mean to minister to people or, or do ministry? All that ministry is, let me, let me uh, simplify this for you. You minister to me when you meet my needs. That's what ministry is. It is seeing somebody in need and using whatever resources, gifts, talents, time, treasure, whatever, and ministering, reaching out, going to a person who is in need and, and getting out of yourself and giving of yourself to another person. Now, let me forever dispel you of the notion or disabuse you of the notion that the early church was communist. It was not. Nor was it socialist. It was not. All of this was voluntary. The New Testament's not against private property. They weren't telling everybody, you got to sell everything and give everything to the group, and the group will disperse it. We will redistribute the wealth. No, totally voluntary. And we know this when Ananias and Sapphira lied about land they had sold. The problem wasn't uh, about whether they sold the whole land. The problem was the lying about it. So there is no justification here for any kind of communist or communist communalism. There is no justification here for the church. Jesus being a socialist, he's not a socialist, never has been. He wouldn't want to be painted with that brush. But there was the importance of a small group community. They had regular meetings where ministries like learning and loving and worshiping were conduct, uh, conducted at a micro level so as to supplement what was happening in the uh, macro large group level. It was extremely sensitive, and they knew immediately who had need. Are you connected to other people in this body? Do you realize you have a responsibility to one another, people? You are accountable to do that. And if the gospel is working in your life, you have the motivation to do it. You're not doing it to... Uh, for your reputation or for any other reason. You're doing it because that's how Jesus has loved you. Now I want to talk about the ministry of worship and prayer. Uh, it, it had a corporate form. In verse 42, Paul says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This almost certainly refers to liturgy, that is, to the service of the Lord's Supper and to the discipline of praying called the prayers. It was not random. It had order to it. It had both an informal and formal aspect. It happened both in homes and in the temple courts. This surely means that there was both informal worship in the small group and more formal worship in the large group. 
It is unlikely that Christians continued to offer sacrifices at the temple, but they evidently continued to go to the prayer services, and they supplemented the worship there with their own meeting in the temple courts. It was both joyful and reverent. It was intimate, and yet at the same time, awe-filled. Notice that in small group worship, the emphasis is more on joy and gladness, but in the large group, there is more emphasis upon awe. This means that both awe and reverence and joyous praise are to mark our worship. Let's look at the next one. The ministry of evangelism or witness through both word and deed. It says mission and evangelism in your bulletin. But also will include, I'll say something about mercy ministries, which I think are powerfully attested to here. First, notice that the ministry of witness or evangelism through both word and deed, it was dynamic. There were conversions daily. Well, how are these people being converted? People were sharing what? The gospel with them. That's how it happened. Just because it is God who saves people. But never forget this. God deigns, he humbles himself to use people like you and me who are crooked sticks and make a straight line. It is God who deigns to use people like you and me doing the best we can to share the gospel with people to save them. He does that. He does that. And you say, well, Pastor Tim, I've shared the gospel with lots of people, and I hadn't had anybody uh, like the Ethiopian eunuch say to me, what must I do to be saved after I read Isaiah 53 to him? Well, don't you know that you're part of a process? One, pe- one person plows, another waters, uh, another sows seed. You're a seed sower, and in time, the crop produces. Sometimes you get low-hanging fruit. I love that as a, as a pastor. Where all my, I've had people come to my office, sit down and say, I don't know what's going on with me. And I say, well, tell me about it. And they will give you, I, I wish I had these recorded, they will give you the most beautiful description of being saved that you've ever heard in your life. They say, well, you know, I've never cared much about the Bible, but now I can't get enough of it. Number two, I've never really thought much. I I feel like I'm a new person. I I feel like, and it's not just, you know, a fad. It's not just, um, you know, a a six-week thing. It's, I've changed. And I I love, I want to be with the people of God. And, and, uh, you know, the the Bible before was interesting, but now it's life-giving to me. And if a person doesn't feel that way, then uh, I'm not sure, you know, I, I don't have the assurance of their salvation. <laughs> the only assurance of salvation that I have is of my own. I don't have it for anybody else. I pray for people, sometimes wonder. But back to the point. It was based on demonstration through community. One of the reasons people were saved is that the love and note of praising was highly attractive to all the people. And Paul talks about this later on in 1 Corinthians 14. It's called doxological evangelism. Sometimes unbelievers will come into a church worship service and they watch and observe us worship. They see us sing. They listen to us pray. They uh, hear uh, the Word of God. They see us observe the sacrament. They see us baptize somebody. And they're witnessing all of this. And as we do it with joy... It's attractive to some people, not all people. 
This church was severely persecuted. So certainly not all people bought it. But there were people who did. People who were moved by it because of the power of it. So one uh, thing that they saw, you know, Jesus said this in John's gospel, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you are reformed. No, he didn't say that, did he? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, because you're a Presbyterian. No. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. What is it? How you love one another. People don't know what to do with that. People think it's weird the way we help each other and the way we like. And, and I know you'll say this to me, and I might be the guy for you, and uh, I hear other people say it. You know, I couldn't imagine ever being friends with this person if I wasn't a Christian because we have nothing in common, and yet out of the love of Christ, there's an amazing diversity in the body which strengthens the body because there's an amazing unity in the body. There's an amazing togetherness and oneness. So, the early church demonstrated the gospel in its community in such a way that it was irresistible to outside observers, and it integrated both word and deed. Sometimes people are moved to Christ by what people do as Christians. Other times they're moved toward Christ because of the word of God you share with them. But it seemed to be both word and deed, which include the idea of economic sharing, uh, was mainly practiced within and among Christians. But we know the early church did not confine its deeds of ministry to Christians. Paul says in Galatians 6.10 that Christians are to do good to all, especially the household of faith. Do good to all, the heavier uh, responsibilities upon the community, but generosity goes outside the walls of the church. Uh, and note, again, we can't read verse 44 as uh, forbidding private property to individuals. The Bible elsewhere makes it clear that private property is valid. This is therefore a voluntary, informal, but powerful sharing fueled by love and not rules. Different Christian communities have voluntary practiced this in different creative, creative ways, some much more structured than others. But it was a very church-centered. When a person was saved, they were added to the number, incorporated into the church. Sometimes I see people converted through parachurch ministries or other ministries that have little or no relationship to the church. This was not the case in the early church. This is what it looked like. And then mercy ministries. Mercy ministries, and I'll just kind of close with this, is seeing people, what, what is mercy? Mercy is uh, not giving uh, people justice, but giving them kindness and help. You know, it, it always struck me as odd that when you have a mercy ministry, it's almost like you've got to find people who deserve to get your mercy. That's kind of counterproductive, uh, isn't it? Mercy should move us. We should be moved with compassion. And uh, some of you are involved in that. You're involved in mercy ministries. And here's what I am learning, because I still learn something every day. Here's what I'm learning. The more I understand the gospel, 
The more I see the grace of God in Christ toward me, the more I see the depth of my own sin, the more I see the glory of His love for me that overwhelms me and melts my heart, the more I'm going to move toward broken people, people in broken conditions. The more I'm going to care about the poor, the more I'm going to care about people who are suffering and hurting. And the harder it will be for me to walk by them, think of the uh, Good Samaritan on the road. The most religious people in the parable of the Good Samaritan did nothing. (laughs) And the only person who helped was the outcast, the Samaritan, the half-breed, outsider, shall we say. But Jesus shows us such tender mercy that it ought to do something to us. It ought to move us out of our comfort zone, out of our, you know, we're just too busy. I'm too busy to do that. Well, you're too busy. I'm too busy to do that. I got too much on my schedule. I got too much on my plate. I can't cook food for somebody else. You know, thank God for Patty Love Lady and the ministry that the women have uh, toward and occasionally I'll cook something in there once in a while. I don't tell anybody, but I do it. But those are great ministries. Those help people. They encourage people. They lift them up. I mean, these are the things that we should find ourselves naturally doing. And when the rest of life programs that out, who's impoverished? We are. It's hurting us and our relationship with Jesus. So in conclusion, this church had a lot of things going for it. Back when we did our session retreat, we took these qualities and asked ourselves, these functions of the church, and asked ourselves honestly, how are we doing at doing these? And some got some fairly okay grades. Some got some not okay grades. But we, that's how we measure. This is how you measure whether this is a church or any church is a church worth being part of. Do they have this kind of life, this kind of culture, this kind of... And yeah, we have weaknesses, we have sins, people break down, yes. But we see a church here that was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were learning constantly, and they had theological depth. They were not shallow. They had a ministry of loving uh, fellowship and uh, uh, intimate relationships, and they missed each other when they were not together. They became, as it were, a new family. They had a ministry of worship in the Spirit. As I tell you all the time, the most important thing you do uh, at the beginning of your week is worship with God's people. They had a ministry of witness through words. There was relentless evangelism. And they had a ministry of service through deeds, and they were sacrificially serving other people kind of church i want to go to kind of church i want to be the pastor of and by god's grace i see a lot of this here i see a lot of this here and i give thanks to god every day for it and i pray for it but at the end of the day what we see here is a portrait a painting as it were of a real live spirit-filled church that i want to go to I remember when I (laughs) 
planted this church in 1988-1999 I forget and I was trying to use a model for church planting that was user-friendly seeker-friendly sort of a Bill Hybels Willow Creek model to plant the church and after about a year and a half of it I remember riding home with Pam one Sunday and said you know what I don't even think I'd go to this church she said well what are you going to do about it I said well we need to pray about it and do something else punt or uh, whatever because I don't even like this church. And I said, and, it's, it, it, and all of my flaws are being reproduced in it. I knew that too. But we decided to go to the very things I'm talking to you about today. And that's when, that's when the breath of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, fell upon people. And God flooded us with a bunch of new people. I don't know where they came from. He just brought them in. And the church began to grow. Keith Irons can tell you about it. He was here. And it was a great church and has been ever since. So, I hope those of you listening are raring to get back into the saddle and be the church. Because once, if the church will just be the church, that's the most powerful and effective thing we can do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the book of Acts and how it is energizing us and revitalizing us just to read about it, just to talk about it. So we pray that the things we read here will be reproduced in us in a powerful way. And now, Father, uh, we thank you that you are faithful to us in so many ways. And we thank, are thankful that we can give back to you a portion of that which you give to us. And we pray that as we continue to worship, that you would be held up and honored and glorified in a most particular and way that is filled with rejoicing. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>